This is just typical. Dan gets together with an old Marine Corps buddy, and all of a sudden it's like Liam and Katie who? That's right, Katie and I aren't in this episode. I know, I know, it's tragic. This simple, fleeting, intimate, give-or-take-three-minute introduction is all the time we're going to spend together. Which I know must be hard for you, but how do you think I feel? I only have about two minutes and thirty seconds left to shit on today's film as much as it really deserves. I know a lot of people probably have warm feelings for this turn of the millennium story about a kinda sorta hotshot navigator with a bad attitude who wants to quit the navy because war isn't war enough for his taste. But in my defense, there's a lot to shit on in this thing. The cinematography is at best overcaffeinated. The writing is a dumpster fire, the CGI sucks even for the time, and I'm sorry to say that Gene Hackman phones it in pretty badly as the rule-breaking, badass, maverick admiral who spends most of the movie wildly reluctant to be any of those things except possibly an admiral, but maybe the audience won't notice if he just shows up and looks like Gene Hackman. And that's not even mentioning the treatment of genocide and mass graves during the series of wars that followed the dissolution of Yugoslavia as a little more than a MacGuffin in a convenient hiding spot. But hey, that pales in comparison to all the early 2000s pop culture references that make no sense in a movie set in 1995. I don't know if there is one magic ingredient that makes this movie so bad, but the soundtrack is a top contender. From a heavenly choir of angels singing as Owen Wilson pulls his ski mask off in slow motion, to Gene Hackman bathed in blacklight looking like he'd rather be anywhere else including dead as vintage 2001 techno thumps menacingly for no reason, to the Ryan Adams song playing as our hero hands over evidence of mass murder and genocide while the choppers fly off into the sunset. There isn't a single ridiculous moment that isn't made more ridiculous by the music playing at that moment. To be fair, Dan and Tyler do a great job of pointing out some of the more heinous absurdities in today's film, and they do make at least one Zoolander joke. But it does break my heart that I wasn't there to explain that Owen Wilson soaked in cold mud and hiding under a rotting corpse was still visible to thermal imaging because that Hansel is so hot right now. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So come tiptoe through the tripwires with a Marine veteran, another Marine veteran, and that's about it. Just a couple of Marine veterans. As Dan once again brings the funk, the Tyler funk, to discuss this action-packed, highly anachronistic, strangely light-hearted slice of accidentally post-9-11 slapstick jingoism, starring a quarter of the cast of the Royal Tenenbaums and directed by the guy who gave us a good day to die hard, Behind Enemy Lines. Call it in. It's danger close. All right, welcome back, everyone. I am here with Tyler Funk, my Marine Corps veteran friend, and now we're going to do a little segment where Tyler tells us about a war film and kind of gives us his uh, impression of the scenes and what he thought. So, Tyler, why don't you tell us what you picked and why, and uh, let's talk a little bit about how you first ran into this film and kind of how you felt revisiting it. Take it away. 
Uh, yeah, we. So I kind of decided on this more last minute. Uh, Daniel asked me, um, you know, to pick a war film and like my favorite war film. And this isn't my favorite, but I did want to pick something that had some sort of elements that I could like, I guess, relate to in real life. Now, obviously, this is a movie, so it's like it's already fantasy, anyways. So, but at any rate, I chose uh, Behind Enemy Lines. I remember seeing that when it came out and thinking it was a great movie. So 2001. So this would have been a couple of years before you joined the military. Exactly. And so I just rewatched the movie, the film, pardon me. <laughs> you call it a movie? Well, I feel like uh, when critics discuss film, you know, it's like the more <laughs> proper version. You know what I mean? As you can hear, Tyler and I recorded this episode two years ago before Danger Close had an established format with a mission briefing and a breakdown, etc. So, this won't be the last interruption from Dan from the future that you'll hear in this episode. Now, I certainly don't expect to come in and replace Katie in this segment with her wit and interesting prompts, but I did want to cue you all in to what the critic response was to this movie when it came out. 2001 was a strange time in the U.S., as many of you will remember. Behind Enemy Lines, released in theaters a mere two months after the tragic attacks of September 11th, and Americans were joining together with a renewed sense of unity and patriotism to support our government and our military forces to respond to the people who attacked us. I can imagine movie-going audiences were no exception to this, and this film surely played much differently in that year than it would today, 22 years later, when we can look back on a tangentially related invasion of Iraq that in hindsight was highly questionable, but at the time was opposed by few politicians. Not to mention a forever war in Afghanistan we only recently pulled out of, without much sense of accomplishment or any kind of win. Not for us, not for the Afghan people. Releasing to mixed reviews, audiences overall liked the film, and even the New York Times gave the film a pretty glowing review, praising its, quote, cool, machine-tooled mixture of jargon, gadgetry, offhanded machismo, and war-as-hell imagery that feels far more authentic than in most Hollywood war movies. Roger Ebert was, let's just say, less than generous in his write-up. He questioned whether the film was supposed to play as a comedy starring Owen Wilson, who at the time had been in three Wes Anderson films, and pointed out many of the same flaws Tyler and I see, like the over-the-top action scene at the end and the sheer ridiculousness of the style of first-time filmmaker John Moore. How did this guy get through combat training? Is a question I also found myself asking often watching Wilson's character of Lieutenant Burnett yelling loudly while hiding from Serb militia and subsequently causing an entire hillside to blow up around him, suffering not even a scratch, of course. I'll save Ebert's best quote for later in our discussion. Let's get back to Tyler and his first experiences watching Behind Enemy Lines. So, yeah, I just remember that movie from growing up and, you know, I just remembered it being exciting, you know. So, I rewatched it recently and it's funny. Yeah, this is a 20-year-old film and uh, just kind of the almost obviousness of movies from back when we were growing up, it's like the way it's written and the plot progression, everything is so like by the books almost, you know? So it was just funny watching it again. That whole thing, I kind of got sort of a kick out of. I don't know if you noticed older movies kind of have this like, you know, almost like cadence to how it progresses. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we're talking about film, there's, 
there's so many things that go into it. This director, John Moore, was a first-time director. He directed a bunch of TV commercials and stuff, but this is his first feature. And you can see it because I think, like you said, he's going by the book on certain things. There's also a very 2001 feel to it. And you can see this even in bigger and better directors who made better films at the time. Ridley Scott, you can see this in his early 2000s films, like Gladiator, which I think is 99 or 97, and then Black Hawk Down, which is 2001. You know what? Honestly, I think that's the movie I was thinking of. I think I meant to fit Black Hawk Down. (laughs) We got a Black Hawk Down. We got a Black Hawk Down. Super 6-1 is down. We got a bird down in the city. That's hilarious, but I still think this movie is going to benefit from your expertise more than Black Hawk Down. So I think it was a a good choice for you, regardless of whether you remember the right movie. But yes, Black Hawk Down is from the same year, but you do see a lot of this like sort of slow motion action and kind of uh, what a lot of people call the hand of the director, meaning that you like feel the director's signature. But this director doesn't really have a signature yet because he's just starting. So I feel like he's pulling from other people and that's what's happening. Yeah. And to be honest, uh, I'll just name one example in the scene where he's running through the rubble of the town and there's landmines everywhere. And eventually one of them sets them off and they're just going off like crazy. There's a cameraman doing his damn best to keep up with Owen Wilson, who apparently was in really good shape for this movie. So he was like booking it and wore out a bunch of cameramen doing this. And they're chasing him around, but I don't know if they didn't have the budget for a steady cam or just decided artistically not to use it. But man, the jumping around that the camera is doing not only almost makes me sick in that scene, but it really it's impossible to not think about the fact that there's a cameraman there. It's very unsubtle. Exactly. It feels like a movie. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's like uh, it's like zoomed out enough conceptually to where you can see that okay the pyrotechnics guys came in say it kind of does remove you from the action you know it kind of puts you back into the audience instead of remaining in the film exactly and another another weird thing i noticed was uh again you know i didn't know off the bat that it was from uh 2001 so when i rented it and uh i saw it was from 2001 so i was like oh wow this was produced right before 9-11 you know, so it's kind of like this perspective of these older movies where it's like the classic archetype of like the the renegade, you know, military guy that ruffles the, you know, ruffles authority, you know, but he kind of gets away with it because he's got some charm and God damn, that, that kid's good, right? Like there's this right. weird attitude of like, it's just something that Hollywood perpetuated for a long time that kid had talent yeah totally and i don't know if owen wilson was the right choice for this i'm not a huge owen wilson fan and again it's not a personal thing like i think he's he seems like a nice guy but he's just like his face doesn't do it for me he always sounds whiny no matter what he's talking like i wish we were in a real world and i'm just like oh someone just needs to slap this dude <laughs> everybody thinks they're gonna get a chance to punch some nazi in the face at normandy and those days are over. They are long gone. Did you know when he was a kid, uh, he got hit square in the face with a hammer when he was like an infant? Wow. Wow. When he was an infant? <laughs> no, I don't think that's true. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I think those are football injuries. But yeah, his nose is his nose is pretty squirrely. Hit <laughs> with a hammer when he was an infant. I'm cutting that out, you fucking maniac. <laughs> yeah, let, let's get through all the bad parts so we can talk about what's good about this film. Because there is good there. 
Okay, so f- right in the beginning, uh, beginning scene, not the beginning scene, but like the first action. And this is an action movie from, you know, it's got like 90s written all over it. But this, uh, this scene where they're like flying in a restricted zone and then like the SAM missiles go off like immediately. What is it? Holy shit, we're being painted! What? And this chase scene is like, what, four minutes? It's like the slowest missile on the planet. (laughs) Yeah, I wish we had like an expert on the weapon systems because there is a bit of trivia on that because it actually calls out what kind of missile they're using and what their capabilities are. But of course, without knowing those details, you still know that in general, surface to air or air to air missiles, they're doing like three or four times the speed, the like max speed of a jet. Exactly. So they're catching you in like a few seconds. You're not evading shit. You have like one shot at dumping out some flares, depending on the guidance system and hoping you can distract the missile and get away. And then that's it. You're toast. Right. And in this scene, yeah, they were doing barrel rolls and all kinds of stuff for minutes. Yeah. Trying to lose these missiles. (laughs) Yeah, it says that it's a, so the SAM battery is a 9K35 Strela 10. It's firing a 9M37M missile. No idea what that is. But again, we're talking surface to air designed to shoot down aircraft. Right. Probably goes 2000 miles an hour. Yeah. Uses an electro-optical guidance, laser proximity fusing, and triple channel guidance system. However, its range is only five kilometers and up to a little over 10,000 feet in altitude. So if anything, in the actual reality of those missiles, those jets would have probably flown past and been out of range before they could have even responded because they're going pretty fast. And exactly like uh, the whole premise that like someone hears a jet and goes and talks to like the Slavic main bad guy and he can like get his homie Dimitri to launch this <laughs> Sam site in like mere moments. Like there he is. Get him. Right. Exactly. And it's funny. It's easy to nitpick the missile scene because there's so much of it and it goes on for so long and it's the most cinematic, but if anything, I feel like it's also unrealistic that those pilots would have so nonchalantly gone into a prohibited area. Like, fighter pilots do not do that because they're in a world of trouble. They could have their wings taken and, like, never fly again, especially in a sensitive conflict situation like that where it's very obvious the scenes with the admirals where NATO's like, look, this is a precarious treaty and, like, anything could set anyone off. And so, you know, you don't want to be responsible for restarting a war oh yeah let's go take some pictures like highly unlikely a pilot would have done that right and the fact that they were by themselves like they would always be in a flight of two jets right so just that these two renegades like yeah we're just doing the christmas mission and also i don't know any f-18 pilot with an ego small enough to let his navigator call the shots yeah i know i know but the scope doesn't lie there it is let's check it out we're not supposed to fly that section chris Brass love a shit fit. Hey, we're on recon, so let's recon something. Why do I listen to you? All right, let's do it. All right, I don't know why I always let you talk me into things. I'm like, you ever talked to an F-18 pilot? Dude, if they got the controls, like, they ain't listening to anybody except themselves. <laughs> right. Yeah, I fly the most sophisticated machine known to man. Don't talk to me that way. <laughs> That's just my perspective as a controller. I'm just saying it seemed like he was very easily persuaded by his... Uh, what are they, REO or FO? Wait. But anyways, Owen Wilson is not the pilot, right? He's right. manning all the navigation and weapon systems and all that stuff because the this particular version of the F-18, which was pretty modern at the time. Uh, in fact, it was the first time it was depicted in a film. 
Whoa, really? This model of F-18, yeah. No, no, oh, no, okay. there's been F-18s in film before, but this was the brand newest tandem model. Gotcha. This is the first depiction of the F-A-18E slash F. I think those might be two different models, but uh, Super Hornet. There's a single pilot version and a tandem version, which I got to say, man, any supersonic attack jet pilot who can do that single person in the cockpit, man, that is a lot. I mean, as air traffic controllers, we know how hard it is just to like man a radio properly. You got to use a certain language and pay attention. When you're listening, it's like really active listening. Now imagine you're in a cockpit doing 450 miles an hour with like radar and weapon systems and possibly your wingman talking to you. Like that is so much to manage. And then you're pulling G's trying to not pass out. Like I got to really give props to, I mean, any fighter pilot, but especially if you're by yourself, that's a tough job. Right. It's a recipe for distracted driving for sure. Yeah. You you have to have like a NASA checklist of right. how to be safe and and crew resource management but you're the crew so you really have to compartmentalize your tasks and the parts of your brain that are doing that that that's a job unto itself it's a lot it's a lot to manage second by second absolutely exactly yeah all the stakes are super high and again when things go wrong they happen super fast much faster than what you see in the film and i think again you're targeted by a sam or a missile from a sam that's coming at you at two to four thousand miles an hour you're not going to see it. You might get the warning. Right. And then it's it's here. Drop the flares. It didn't work. You're ejecting. It, it, exactly. You're not trying to get hit by that missile because for one, it could just blow up the whole plane and kill you. Oh, yeah. Two, it may disable the ejection system through damage. So like if you got a safe chance at ejecting, you're going to take it before that missile gets there. If you even have time, pilots can call in. I'm sure we have pilots in the audience. They can call in and tell us their experiences with, with that. But it was a cool scene, though, for cinematic effect. I enjoyed yeah. it. Oh, definitely entertaining. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So just to give a brief synopsis, this is happening during the ex-Yugoslavia conflict between Serbs and there was Muslim population and lots of genocide going on, which is depicted in the film. Dan from the future again here. I did such a disservice to this conflict and all the people who died in it with my insufficient description that I thought I should go back and do some research and give you all a short summary that does it some semblance of justice. I tried to keep it as concise and simple as I could. After the fall of the Soviet Union at the end of 1991, the former Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia splintered into six different countries. Some of these countries were able to separate peacefully like Macedonia, while others broke out into conflict over their independence like Slovenia and Croatia. As communism gave way to nationalism, and later ultranationalism, tensions in multicultural and multi-ethnic regions were heightened. One such place, the former Socialist Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina, was deep in the middle of these rapidly changing political divisions. Situated between Croatia to the west and Serbia to the east, it is populated by Croats and Serbs, mostly Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christians respectively, and Bosniaks, Bosnian Muslims. Islam was brought to the region by the Ottoman Empire in the 15th century. When Bosnian elections were held in early 1992, the active voters, mostly Bosniaks, voted for independence from Yugoslavia. But the Bosnian Serbs living there boycotted the vote and did not want to separate from Yugoslavia, not wanting to become an ethnic minority in their own newly formed country. 
The Bosnian Serbs declared their own Serbian Republic within Bosnia, which was only recognized by neighboring Serbia and its president, Slobodan Milosevic. He was an ultra-nationalist who wanted to incorporate Bosnian Serbs and their territory into Serbia. In April of 1992, the Bosnian War officially broke out. In the interest of brevity, and because we're not primarily a history podcast, I'll summarize this very complex conflict by saying that it was a brutal war lasting over three years, resulting in around 100,000 people being killed and millions more being displaced. With the Serbian government in control of most of the Yugoslav army, many battles centered around populated areas full of civilians of mixed ethnicities and allegiances. This culminated in the infamous siege of Sarajevo and in atrocious massacres like Srebrenica, the worst instance of ethnic cleansing in Europe since the Holocaust. Later that summer, the UN sent a peacekeeping mission to Bosnia. In 93, NATO established a no-fly zone in order to ground the Serb-controlled Yugoslav Air Force and prevent the bombing of Bosnian cities. In 1995, close to the end of hostilities, U.S. Air Force pilot Scott O'Grady was shot down over Bosnia while on a routine patrol. The U.S. and NATO launched a rescue mission, pulling him out six days later. This film is loosely based on that event, as we will discuss in more detail a bit later. You will hear the Cincinnati Accord mentioned in the film, and we refer to it as the Ohio Accord. But the actual accord signed under the Clinton administration, which formally ended the war, is called the Dayton Accord. 161 people were later tried by a UN tribunal for war crimes. Most of them were Serbs, although Croats and Bosniaks also faced trial. Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic died before his trial was concluded. This is filmed in Slovakia, so it's about... 400 miles from the real Serbian mountains where it would have happened. So pretty accurate terrain. Uh, we're looking at kind of what those pilots would have been looking at. And it is loosely based on an Air Force pilot that uh, went down, although they took a lot of liberties. So they're flying around. They go into a warning area to take some pictures. They get shot down. And the rest of the story is sort of the survival and rescue of Owen Wilson. And that's where we're going to get into next. So, yeah, let's start with the ejection and go from there, I guess. So, yeah, uh, so they land, right? And uh, the pilot, you know, he's bleeding in the leg. He took an injury. And uh, they're in these rough mountains with no service. So uh, they, they got to, okay, oh, here's the plan. We got to get up to the top of the, the ridge so we can make a phone call back to the ship, right? But uh, the pilot, his leg's damaged. So he's like, hey, just hang tight. I'll go run and do this. And uh, I'll be right back. And as soon as he leaves, like, what, a hundred guys roll yeah. up on the pilot with, like, tanks and vehicles and everything. <laughs> yeah, they got everything. They're ready for a war. <laughs> right, yeah. They might do that, right? The aircraft went down and they're going to go comb the hillside, you know? So, bam, there they are. So, Owen Wilson is up near the top of the ridge, like, in some uh, trees, pulls out his little binoculars, and he sees the pilot surrounded. And uh, they're chit-chatting, and then, yeah, they stand him up and execute the pilot. And Owen Wilson sees this and gasps and falls onto the ground, and then that's where everyone sees... I think he yells, he yells, no! <laughs> right, so then, yeah, a hundred guys with fully automatic weapons light up the entire hillside, and he just <laughs> sprints, just the invincible American, you know? These guys have worse shooting than, like... 
the worst uh, stormtrooper in Star Wars you could ever imagine. Like, just ain't hitting shit ever with automatic weapons. And it's like it's again just like harping back to this uh, this era of like routine movie making. You know, it's just something that like made it into every movie somehow. Right. I'm going to be running and there's just going to be rounds hitting left and right, but not a single one's going to hit me. I wanted to rewind just for a second. So if you go down either near your, with the aircraft, near the aircraft or in a parachute and you survive, I imagine that the immediate clearing with your bright ass, for some reason, Italian flag parachute. I don't know if I'm colorblind or what, but like I did not see blue, white, and red. It looked green, white, and red. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And it should have been like an olive drab, not a bright. (laughs) This isn't like a 4th of July parade. You're not trying to be like, America, here I come. I'm skydiving into the stadium. (laughs) I'm assuming the first thing you would try and do, even with a damaged leg, is crawl the hell away from the parachute and this like thing that's pinpointing exactly where you are. That's what I would have done. You know, you know, you're in you're in scary territory. It's like, dude, at least help me into like that thicket. I don't need to be in the middle of this meadow. Yeah. Like, A, get away from the parachute and all the equipment that clearly identifies where you landed. B, get some concealment, like get into those forests and get the hell out of there. Right. So, yeah, that was that was their first mistake from a survival perspective. They made it one minute in and already goofing up. And then what is what is the survival manual say about yelling no to a hundred enemy fighters that are like a few hundred yards away. You know, kudos to Owen Wilson. I don't think it really mentions that. (laughs) You'd think it was obvious, but hey, I don't think they define it. He didn't break any actual rules. (laughs) Right. Please do not scream at the enemy. (laughs) (laughs) When in concealment and trying to not get shot. Would would you A, pipe down? (laughs) Would you B, take off running? C, would you shout at them? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this starts a kind of gigantic chase scene that pretty much continues throughout the film. Yeah. And then we get into probably the most serious part of the movie well, I think there might be a little bit of right before this or right after this, some point where he's like going on to ridgelines to get sort of line of sight with his radio, I guess. Yes. Now, back in this day, would a pilot with we're talking mid late 1990s equipment, would they have had any kind of sat phone or anything? Or was that technology further into the future? Do you know? I would assume so. Again, I, I'm not I'm not an expert, but this is. An F-18 pilot. Yeah, they probably had that sort of capability. Interesting. Yeah, because I feel like mid-90s is sort of the satellite line. That's when like a lot more satellites started going up. We'll have to ask someone about that. But Yeah. Because I'm assuming with a sat phone, you could be in the middle of a valley surrounded by mountains. As long as you have a straight shot up, you can get a call. Right. I do remember in Lone Survivor that that's how... Damn, I can't remember his name right now, but the lieutenant died and in real life this is what he got the medal of honor for after being shot he walked out into like a rock outcropping so that he could get on the sat phone and call for help and that's how yeah. he died so maybe maybe you do need some clearance we'll have to add, poll the audience for that one as well and you know what it could just be the rookie director needed to create some way to separate the characters right because then we move in at some point in this sequence we move into the like 
panning helicopter shots going around in a 360 around Owen Wilson, like sitting on a ridge line, like completely silhouetting himself, which I'm like, yep, I'm no F-18 pilot, but even in basic hunting, they tell you right. like, like a deer is going to see you. If you just stand up like on the ridge line, you would walk right below that so that at least what's on the other side of that doesn't see you and you're not being silhouetted. Right. Absolutely. But they decided to do this crazy panning yeah. dramatic shots, which all right, fair enough. So he's he's running off then, and he runs into something that was foreshadowed because I don't think I realized it, but the very beginning of the film, they are sort of prettying up this mass grave. They're like planting trees around it so that it'll kind of cover it up. Yet they didn't bother to cover up the bodies and actually fill this grave in, which doesn't make any sense. But anyways, now we run into Owen Wilson getting almost caught right by these people and then running into the mass grave. What would Tyler Funk do in this situation? And, you know, I, I will say um, him hiding amongst the dead bodies, pretty good plan, you know? And it was nice and muddy, so you could kind of conceal your uniform. And so, yeah, diving under a bunch of bodies, as gross as it is, he might have got away with it. You know, again, you're rolling the dice, but hey, that's a, that's a great hiding spot. Yeah, I have to agree that given his limited options in that moment, it was probably his best bet. Especially since they did show him actually hiding underneath the body, which is more realistic than just laying there. Because his American uniform would have, you know, they would have identified it pretty quickly. Yeah. I definitely think the sort of thermal imaging satellite stuff is like totally bullshit. I don't think that existed at the time, nor do I think it exists now. That's just what I was going to mention. Yeah, that whole like... Oh, sir, this is pretty illegal. <laughs> they like, yeah, patch into this satellite, turn it around and point it in this area. Activate thermals. Now, this is imagery from a Northrop Grumman relay satellite downlink through the Janet Processing Center in Stuttgart. We've hotwired it for heat image, and it's streaming in now. This isn't strictly legal, sir. And it was like from the illegal CIA room on the aircraft carrier. Right. I'm like, yeah. I don't know what that room is, but uh, I'm not sure if that exists. That was pretty hilarious. Right. And the commander has to sign in, but there's already people in there. Right. There's a dude smoking in there. Like just for right. Yeah. That was pretty classic, like Hollywood trope. It also made me think of uh, Predator. Yeah. Because one, one of the things that's always been called out as... Not a goof, but just sort of not completely accurate about predators. When Arnie covers himself in mud, it's like mud will conceal you from a thermal imaging if you can cover up like your eyeballs and everything. Right. But in about 10, 15 minutes, your body's going to heat that mud up and you're now going to have the same signature. Absolutely. So I guess they got that right in this in the sense that if you had thermal imaging, eventually you would still be able to see Owen Wilson. But I don't know. Anyways, we're I know nitpicking that. But it was a funny scene. Very, very late 90s. Exactly. It's got all the trappings of 80s movies that never grew up. But here they are in 2001, you know? Right. And, you know, but again, pretty dramatic and serious. I mean, mm-hmm. this this conflict was not that long before this. This We're talking about the early 90s here. So mm-hmm. There are people who could be watching this in Eastern Europe or in ex-Yugoslavia that like lost people to these uh, extrajudicial killings. So definitely an intense thing to show in like a sort of Hollywood entertaining action movie. Yeah. I'll give him credit for that. Hey, the man took a risk, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, Have you ever done any training on avoiding like tripwires and landmines and sort of looking for booby traps and that kind of thing? Well, so we didn't really cover that in Sears school, but 
I'm sure you remember in boot camp, we even did that, where you use the trick to take your uh, the sling off your rifle and let it dangle. And that way, if it caught on anything, you'd be able to at least see it. You remember doing that in boot camp? Oh, man. Like, vaguely. I do remember some urban uh, training, maybe in combat training. Maybe, yeah. But the sling trick makes sense. I remember back in the days of the early 2000s during Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom and all that, that infantry Marines specifically, because that's what I was hearing about, but probably the army did this too. They were writing back home. Remember the whole Rumsfeld era of like, well, when you got bicycles, you go to war on bicycles. Like there was this whole issue of Humvees not being properly armored and the administration kind of just writing it off and be like, well, it is what it is. And people are like, no, dude, our kids are dying for stupid budgetary reasons. Like that shouldn't be happening. These armies should, these Humvees should be armored. And so you were having things like, enlisted men buying ceramic plates online to put in their armor because they didn't have enough. They would only get a front plate, not a back plate, etc. And one of the things I remember them requesting from home was spray cans of silly string because it was one of the best things to use to detect booby traps and wires and stuff for the same reason as the sling, except you could do it further and kind of carpet a room. So you shoot the silly sling into the room and then if it got caught on a wire above the ground, you would see it get caught. And right. so it would identify trip wires for you. And I was like, that is super ingenious. So yeah, at one point, I know that infantry guys were just having their family send in boxes and boxes of these uh, silly string, which is kind of a cool trick. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, does you know, pyrotechnic department just like rigged this whole town full of mines and explosives, which you kind of knew eventually were going off. So Right. Did any of your training discuss how to interact with the local population to figure out, are they friendly? Are they going to help you? Are they going to turn you in? That must be something that you talk about in POW training. Uh, yes. So when uh, when we were doing SEER school, remember when I was talking about kind of we started as a whole class and then we broke up into squads so we're out there with my squad and uh, my squad leader is some lieutenant dude. You know, uh, I think he was he either was a pilot or trying to be a pilot or something. So he's in seer school with us. And uh, we're we're with our instructor, who is a force recon Marine. And we are just chilling, kind of hanging out in the shade. It's the middle of the day. It's still pretty hot as well as cold. Like, you know, we're in, you know, the desert ish area in November. So, I mean, yeah, it's like. You got to peel some layers off in the day. So we're just kind of chilling around this tree in the shade, taking a break. And uh, someone just rolls up behind us. We're kind of like in a ravine area, right? And some guy, it looked like a farmer. He's on foot. Yeah, he's just standing there and he's got like a staff. And uh, someone notices him and is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, look at that, right? And everyone kind of stopped and looked over. And it's like, like your heart kind of like whoa, like that's a foreigner, you know? And it's right. like, whoa, 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 okay, what do we do? Everybody chill, everybody chill. And so, uh, you know, we like sort of trying to uh, communicate because like, even though this is training, it's like uh, he doesn't speak back to us in English. So we don't know what he wants. He doesn't know Okay, what so want. he's part of the exercise though. This isn't a random Absolutely. goat herder just walking into a training area. Gotcha. <laughs> right, okay. right. Yeah, we are, we are in California. <laughs> But hey, but there could be goat herders out there. Like, it's like an Uzbeki goat herder just randomly <laughs> in California. Like, I don't, are you, what's what's code word here? But yeah, that was kind of a, uh, a, a point of 
training where it's like, yeah, how do you deal with local populations and, you know, what is the protocol? So we kind of sort of, you know, communicated a little bit and then uh, like gave a salutation by like he was going to be on his way. And it's like, we didn't interfere with his life and he didn't interfere with our life. And now it's like, if you are in the middle of nowhere in a hostile area, what if that person calls the police of his town or whatever that, you know, government agency structure happens to be? It's like, well, now are they looking for us for real? You know? Yeah. It almost sounds like you're, you have to weigh sort of risk reward, meaning if one of you has been shot and like needs hospitalization, right? You might try and get more help from that civilian or try and ask right. where the hospital is or something like that. As opposed to if you're not at risk and you're just chilling, the less you interact, the better you may want to let him slip by. Right. And not even interact at all. And I think this movie kind of highlights on that when he meets, you know, when he rolls out into the uh, street and that truck picks him up, that guy dressed like Elvis. Yeah. He was the set designer for the, uh, for the film. Really cool. Yeah. So, yeah, they kind of touch on, you know, he makes, uh, you know, I guess a bit of a friendship and uh, he, he gets helped out by being being cool with the locals. Right. Yeah. I was wondering, I mean, again, in that situation, he's sort of there's a lot of danger. So it's weighing that risk is kind of iffy, but they they sort of do the up finger to communicate like pilot, like plane. And he admits that he's the pilot, you know, yep. so he's he's given away a little bit there. But he's kind of out of options. He's got. You know, the most tenacious Slavic sniper that can't hit him ever <laughs> on his tail all the time. Not wearing a hat. like Dude is on a personal mission to end him. Oh, yeah. And he looks evil, right? Right, yeah. Like weird hairdo. and Adidas tracksuit. Right, the tracksuit, yeah. <laughs> just to, like, sell that he's just, like, Russian scumbag. <laughs> yeah, they really played that up. Yeah, and then I feel like almost the bits of realism that were here were probably at their best in, like, the middle of the film and sort of this evasion part, because then the rescue gets, like, just completely out of hand. Right. (laughs) The rescue is very out of hand. The end is something else, I gotta say. So what happens is Owen Wilson makes this, like, whole journey. He's gone miles and miles through enemy territory. And then uh, he he misses his extraction because of some um, propagandas released that, oh, hey, we found him because he swapped uniforms when he was getting chased. Right. So he could sneak out. So the end, he misses his uh, helicopters and he looks over and he sees, you know, his landing site up on the horizon, right? And he's like, I'm not going to let my boy die for nothing. I'm going to go get those digital pictures we took. <laughs> Remember they made such a big deal about like, this is futuristic. It's a digital photo. right? Yeah, the hard drive. It's like, oh, it's not a floppy disk. It's like a hard drive. And yeah, the uh, the bad guys, lackeys, like they have like this tape reel that has like oh we don't we can't find the photos yeah we can't yeah i don't know what that was about you bumbling idiots <laughs> they're like we found the reel but there's no film in it and i'm like what the hell's going on here they got a like 1950s projector on this plane right like the files are in the computer <laughs> yeah to back up just a second i thought it was kind of hilarious that the <laughs> the admiral gene hackman's character is like all right then 
go get our boy back. Then he saddles up and he's like getting in the helicopter with him. And I'm like, oh man, I don't know if an admiral's ever taken part of a search and rescue mission like that. <laughs> it's like he's right. the captain of an aircraft carrier. He's like the commander of an aircraft carrier. Right. If you lose that guy, you're not replacing him easily, right? Sorry, boys. I gotta go pick this guy up. I know we have entire teams that are specialized for this exact function, but I'm coming too. <laughs> I have zero training or practice in this, but I just need to show up to make sure that it's mission accomplished. So they show up in their Hueys, and initially Owen Wilson is like gonna make the classic sort of run and slow motion dive off the cliff to catch the dude. But it's somewhere mid run towards the statue that he realizes, oh man, I left the hard drive behind. And then he turns around to face this. What a plot twist, am I right? Turns around to face this army that apparently can't hit anything at all. With even explosive cannon rounds, like that anti-aircraft gun they're firing. I can't remember if they fired it in this scene. They do fire it at the beginning into the hills. Like, those are cannon rounds. They explode. Those aren't just inner <laughs> bullets. Like, like, how are you missing this, dude? Right. Each round is probably worth, like, $800. Right? <laughs> so anyways, runs back, pulls the hard drive out. And when you look at the scene, there is well over 50, maybe 100 guys, vehicles. They're on, like truck-mounted 50-cal machine guns, and there's all these people shooting at one person. It's like, dude, you would your body would just start disintegrating <laughs> like every quarter of a second. You would like Seriously. slowly turn into a pile of goo, but not Owen Wilson. He takes off running. I'm going to get to that chair, and uh, it's on a frozen lake, so he like slides like he's sliding into second base and uh pulls out a pistol and every <laughs> shot he's just baseball slide and he's just non-stop chest shooting all these guys with a nine mil and they're all like oh bloody american we can't get him <laughs> and then he turns around and people are still shooting there's missiles coming by like it's out of control and he's just like oh yeah i gotta make it yeah not to mention that this must be the like hardest frozen lake on earth because it's like any one of these explosive rounds would have hit that lake and like he would have been screwed because the ice would have broken he would have fallen in <laughs> oh yeah this this we'll get back to this in just a second this reminded me of uh, roger ebert actually pointed this out on his list of sort of like who would actually do this in real life and it's during the uniform swap scene you first see the dead body that's obviously not him right and and the serbs figure that out and then there's a scene where you can see the back of a soldier with an AK and he's wearing a ski mask and he's walking past that armored vehicle. And you're like, oh, after a second, you're like, oh, this must be Owen Wilson wearing the enemy uniform, which is fine. Everything about this is fine. And then he gets about four yards away from the truck, takes his ski mask off so that his flowing, well-conditioned, like blonde hair comes out, which like he's the only one that looks like that. And then turns around, which you know that truck is right there with dudes sitting on top of it and like flashes his face to everyone and then sort of like partly in slow motion starts to then jog out of the picture. And I was like, what in the hell was that about? Why would you ever do that ever? Right. Yeah. You want to be unnoticed, right? Like, oh, I'm just uh, I'm just one of these foot soldiers. I'm just going to go take a pee or something. Exactly. Yeah. You go take a pee and disappear. Right. It's like he might as well done like the ending of Breakfast Club right in front of that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So anyways, we're back on the ice and he's sliding in and firing his nine mil and gets the hard drive, starts running back. Then they they do the uh, Gene Ackman talks about a fast rope. 
But really what they're doing here, which I've seen special forces guys do at Pendleton, tell me if you have any experience with it, but spy rigging, which is when you have a rope out the bottom of a helicopter and you have guys who are, they're obviously, they're not hanging onto it with their hands. Like they're clipped in on a harness into this rope. What is, do you know what that's used for usually? As an air traffic controller, I remember seeing people do that. I remember people like just kind of standing out in the airfield, helicopter takes off. And yeah, there's just this guy that just gets to dangle and f- pretend like he's flying by himself. It's like, I, yeah, I, I don't understand that either. What Often I would see like four of them. In, in right, a, in exactly. Vertically on the rope. I, I believe that since obviously the pickup is happening, it's already set up, right? The fast rope is on the ground. It's already hooked into the helicopter and everybody's hooked into the rope. And as the helicopter takes off, which they probably do in a particular fashion to make sure they're not dragging these guys on the ground, they have to go up a certain altitude and then it picks everybody up. I believe what it's for is for uh, quick insertions when you don't want to bring the helicopter down because it's too dangerous. Either yeah, okay. Either there's small arms fire or whatever the case may be. Because right, yeah, we got to get guns on the ground this second. Right, I, and this is just me deducing this again. Yeah. Someone who knows better could call in and correct us. But so that when you bring in the helicopter, you know they're hanging down. I don't know, eighty feet below the helicopter. So instead of coming all the way to the ground and making yourself really vulnerable, the helicopter can still use its like side machine guns. You know, they usually have a 7.62 on the side of a Huey. So they have some protection. Maybe there's a gunship as well. And then they can drop off these operators as because once they're a few feet off the ground, they can just unclip and jump down or maybe they have to hit the ground. But whatever, either way, as soon as they unclip and they give the signal, the helicopter can take off and it's free and clear or they may even dump the rope. I don't know. Yeah. So it seems to me an insertion tactic more than like a pickup or anything else. You know, I'd have to agree with you. So speaking of spy rigging, so the last scene, of course, off this cliff is Owen Wilson doing the jump and then just going for the hand to hand like cliffhanger grab. Yeah. (laughs) Which is like not something anyone would ever attempt in real life. And I love that uh, that guy is a Marine Corps captain, you know? Right. Yeah. He's just he's doing the dirty. Right. And again, I I would think that the reverse of the spy rigging we just talked about would be that that guy has a empty space with a clip left on the rope with a knot or however it's attached. And he would be brought down and would very quickly either put a harness on the pilot they're picking up or he already has some kind he's in a flight suit. So he may already have something that you could clip into that would take his whole body weight clip him in and take off. That's how you do it, right? Because he might be injured. The last thing you want, and I know a little bit of this just from rock climbing, like the last thing you want is someone trying to hang on of their own on their own devices, especially since the scene seems to carry off like three, four, ten minutes later. (laughs) They're flying off into the sunset and you still got this like arm in arm like hanging thing going on in them. (laughs) Like how long are we just going to let this dude hang off one hand? But hey, you know, they're in a very sticky situation on that cliffside with the the epic statue, huge gunfight. <laughs> Everybody's missing left and right. <laughs> He's got to get out of there, you know? Right. There's just all this incompetence going on all over yeah. the place. <laughs> got to get this American out of here. Yeah, I thought that was a fitting ending to the action where it's like at no point did they attempt to clip him in. They just sort of like let him crawl up the captain and then make his way up the rope and into the helicopter eventually. See, but that's the thing is uh, he's one of the uh, ruffle the feathers of authority type military guys. Right. He's got this. Just get me close. Yeah. 
I'm trying to be Rambo, son. And then, of course, the first thing he does is pull out the hard drive for the Admiral. He's like, right. Stackhouse died for this. You know, <laughs> yeah. the whole theater explodes and clapping and <laughs> <laughs> cheering. Admiral, you're holding a letter for me. I'd like to get it back. And that's, of course, his resignation letter. Right. Oh, also, I think him... Uh, there's a scene where uh, he turns the beacon on the ejection seat back on, and then the the like the satellite operator turns around. And he's like, "It's the homing beacon, sir, on the second ejection seat. The only way to reactivate that beacon is from the seat manually." How long has that been on? Seven minutes, sir. You've got to be very familiar with our systems to reactivate that beacon. That's Burnett. And he used a 9-volt battery from a flashlight. <laughs> come on, baby, come on. <laughs> yes, it's working. <laughs> it's got to be an American, bro. <laughs> like no dumb Serbian could have possibly figured out how to rig this machine. <laughs> right, yeah. Are you shit me? Yeah. <laughs> There's a red and a black wire. <laughs> like, no way, not a chance. <laughs> I guess since you're an electrical engineer, there's like a little bit of extra comedy to that. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, that might be my own biases laughing at that specific scene. <laughs> you know what we missed? The whole of football catapult launch scene. Because <laughs> yeah. I was like looking at it, like wondering how realistic it was where I was. Because I'm pretty sure that uh, the way the catapults work, they're already set touching the aircraft nose gear or whatever. Yes. And then they crank forward. It's not a... Let's get a running start and smash into this aircraft's gear, which would probably just destroy the gear and cause a gigantic fireball. Like, so if I were to set up a football on a catapult and hope that it had any kind of chance of doing anything, I'd place it on the whatever that thing is called, right? The, the chop, the launcher foot, and then yeah, the yeah, and then let it go forward as opposed to like. Here it is. Now let's launch the catapult. And sure enough, they tried doing this in making the film and just shredded like 20 footballs. Because as soon as that thing hit it, the thing just vaporized, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I thought it was funny. In the end, the scene where they're throwing the football is just one of the Master Chiefs on board, just like through the football. Because <laughs> that's the only way to do it realistically. Right. What do you think? I would give this film, uh, not, not to like give it a rating, but I would say... Pretty high ratings on entertainment and sort of rewatchability. Absolutely. Dude, the uh, the action scenes, I mean, come on, who don't like a... They're fun. And they got a handful of good action scenes, you know? Yeah, a lot of it's well choreographed. The missile chase scene is, like, fun. It's just not realistic, but it's pretty fun to watch. Exactly, yeah. Not, not one where uh, it's going to bring up huge politics about right. that war at the and time. And the plot's not going to blow your mind, I promise you. Right. And neither is Owen Wilson's acting, in my opinion. But, right. you know, it, he, he can run like a motherfucker. I know. No, <laughs> that was great. All right. So, here we are from the future. This is uh, Dan and Tyler, two years after this original episode was recorded. <laughs> And uh, I realized that at the time of recording, it was so early on in the podcast, I really didn't have the format figured out. So I went back and had to add a mission briefing. I went back and studied up a little bit on the Bosnian War and gave you guys a bit of history on that since I did such a shitty job in the original recording with that. And we also have to add a breakdown that we will do here in just a second. But uh, Tyler, welcome back for the third time. <laughs> Hey, always happy to be here. 
And we just rewatched the movie again. So first things first, any thoughts or additional things you didn't get to in our original talk uh, on rewatching this movie again in 2023? I, I don't think so. I mean, I did not do any research on Bosnia or anything of that nature. Not your job. Not your job. It's okay. <laughs> that was not in the, uh, the instructions. Correct. Okay, well, I can jump in. I, I guess I'll give a, uh, just a couple of things. Yeah, learning a little more about the history, I was kind of surprised by how much the film, it's not like it, it gives you a good layout of the history, but it doesn't clash with anything. It's like, okay, it, it kind of fits in with what's going on. This is set around 1995. So they mention the Cincinnati or Ohio Accords, which is... The treaty that essentially ended this war and and got everyone on the same page and created a ceasefire, etc. So this is right at the end of the conflict when things were indeed a little dicey and NATO was worried about starting things back up and uh, crimes against humanity were probably in the process of being covered up. So that's kind of where we're at. I talked a little bit about the event this is loosely based on, which is on Air Force pilot Scott O'Grady's downing in somewhat similar circumstances. What I found interesting, especially after editing and reviewing Tyler's interview about SEER training and all of that, is that O'Grady survived for six days in the woods. And according to him, it's pretty clear that he relied heavily on his SEER training to remember what to do, what not to do how to find food and water and shelter in the woods. The big difference is, is he was never in a populated area. He never had to go into a town and hide or anything like that. He was mostly in the woods, but he was being looked for. He did have gunfire land pretty close to him as they were sort of spraying the woods trying to find him. And I don't think he was connected with taking recon photos of a massacre or of a mass grave or anything like that. Apparently, they never asked him anything, including permission to, you know, use his name likeness, anything like that. So even though the pilot in the film is fictional, he was pretty pissed. Apparently, this guy was pretty conservative because one thing he was really upset about was the use of cursing in his character, which he's like, I would have never done that. <laughs> which of all things to be angry about is kind of funny. He did sue the production and they settled out of court. So they ended up paying him because, you know, rightfully so they kind of used his story loosely and never, you know, got his permission or had him involved. So that's fair. Well, then how, how'd they find the story? Uh, well, the story was public, right? So he was, he was rescued and all that, but still, if yeah. it, you know, I don't know the details of the lawsuit, but if they're going to make a movie that involves your likeness or at least, you know, somewhat the details of your story. I mean, it's debatable, right? Right. The production end up deciding to settle, which is usually a good sign that they know they're in the wrong, right? Yep. If they think they're in the right, they're just going to take you to court and they're going to be like, well, that's not you. That's, we made up a name. It's a different yeah. story. It's not an F-16, it's an F-18, right? Like they could have done something like that. So, so did he have a co-pilot? So there were two aircraft involved. The second missile struck O'Grady's F-16. F-18. No, so it was an F-16 originally. This oh, is an Air Force pilot. Oh. That, that's what I'm saying is different in the original story. So it sounds like his flight lead saw him get hit. He ejected. The other guy did not see the parachute. So it sounds like there were two guys because they were in two planes, single piloted F-16s. Yeah. 
but only O'Grady went down. So that is the original event. And then again, he survived for six days on his own until a team of, wait for it, pretty sure he's a recon Marines. Yeah, so until they sent two heavy Marine helicopters after him with a whole complement of two Cobras, two Harriers, two uh, EA-6s for electronic warfare, two EF-111s, two Hornets, a pair of uh, A-10s. Like, they sent an entire fleet of aircraft. Like, they sent a Mew (laughs) after this dude eventually. That was a very expensive mission. Oh, yeah. That was, like, millions and millions of dollars to rescue this guy. And by the time they got to his flare and got to the area where he was, they had several dozen Marines ready to go in the back of these, like ready to respond to fire if needed. Yeah. They touched down. He immediately ran to the helicopters. Uh, one of them, they had already come out and were pulling security. The other one, I think that ramp opened. He ran into the helicopter. All the Marines were like, I guess we'll just sit here now. <laughs> so they loaded him up and took off. It, all in all, it was a seven minute operation. However, they did get fired upon on leaving. So... They had three shoulder launch surface to air missiles fire at them that missed. And they had several pock marks from small arms fire. The Marines also returned fire on the ground with, with their machine gun on board. So yeah, the real story is kind of more interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Like, well, it's just clearly in the film, it turns into this, like, I mean, I, I, that's probably to me, kind of the worst part of the film is at the end. It's just like, such a ridiculous circus of like it's like a fireworks show where it's like the finale you know (laughs) throw everything you got at it these guys are expending just like thousands and thousands of rounds they can't hit him for shit i'm sure i mentioned ebert's review earlier but uh (laughs) my favorite line of ebert's review its hero is so reckless and its villain so incompetent that it's a showdown between a man begging to be shot and an enemy that can't hit the side of a Bosnian barn. That's a good one, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was pretty on point where I'm like, yeah, that's pretty pretty accurate description. So yeah, it, it's kind of funny. Like clearly O'Grady would have never agreed to have a movie made or at least maybe he just would have wanted it to be done a certain way. But uh, had their mission been to do something more accurate to real life, it would have still been a pretty interesting story. Yeah. Just less of the interacting with the populace part of things is what we would have been missing. But still, it sounded pretty eventful. Six Days in the Woods sounds pretty harrowing to me. He had uh, like a 30-pound survival bag with him from the plane. So he did manage to get some supplies and stuff. So I'm sure that helped him out. But still, six days, long time. Yeah. Now it's time for the breakdown, where we ask ourselves three questions. What was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Okay, so I thought about this. Since doing the last uh, episode, we talked about this movie a little bit. You said um, that this is this guy's rookie showing as a director for like feature film. Mm Mm-hmm. So I kind of put myself in his shoes, right? I've been directing for a little while, and now I get a shot. Hey, Tyler, you're going to do a movie for real. So if I'm him, my real objective is honestly to make a profitable film. 
you know, what's the best thing that a director could do? He can add to or even like alter culture or like, you know, maybe not like change humanity, but like as like a, a piece of entertainment that could be like your highest achievement, I would assume. So it's like your first go, you ain't going to do that. Honestly, you need to be a profitable guy so that the studio is says, you know, now you can have another shot. You could start building your rep. So if I'm that guy, the objective of the filmmaker would be to be profitable. Now, uh, I think he did a pretty good job for his first go, better than I could do. Granted, I've never directed, but I did think it was a fun movie for sure. And, uh, you know, now that we've kind of talked about the conflicts and, you know, what really happened and what what kind of the setting was, which I didn't really know. You know, I think he did a good job. So was it on target? I don't know if it was profitable, but in my estimation, I think that would be my chief concern as my first feature film. So here's the numbers for you real quick. Estimated budget of 40 million and its worldwide gross was almost 92 million. So I think by all metrics, especially for his first film, that is definitely a financially successful movie. Well, and yeah, for your Ricky showing, it's like, uh, as long as I am in the green, then I can get more responsibility for the future. If I'm in his shoes, that is my chief objective is, you know, can you be successful for the studio? Because this is a business, right? So was it on target based on the numbers? Yes, it was entertaining. Did I like it? Yeah. It's not my favorite movie. Again, I rented it, and then I rented it again last night. I'm not <laughs> going to buy the movie. Did like it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I agree. Definitely not screwing up and mm-hmm. not costing the studio money is right. like going to be high on your list of priorities as a brand new director. After that, it's like, shit, they're going to go find a new director, right? What, what do you think your breakdown might be? I think you're right on. That's a good interpretation. I think the intent... Like you said, being successful, I mean, financially, not getting fired, that's going to be high on his list. But, you know, mostly this film is designed for entertainment. It's loosely based on a real event. Maybe it should have been more loose because clearly they got sued by the pilot and he wasn't too happy. So (laughs) it's kind of in that middle ground where it's like not super accurate, but the events it's based on are recognizable enough that it's hard to criticize it for like not being accurate because it seems fictional, but it's also done in that style of, I don't think they ever do a based on true events like line at the beginning, right. but at the end it does the pause screen and it's like, yeah. yeah. Commander Leslie was, yeah, like disgraced or something like that. So he retired. Yeah. It, it's like Admiral Leslie chose to, you know, stick by the men and he got, you know, demoted or whatever. And then it's like, uh, yeah, they offered him like an admin job and he was like, nah, fuck it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like he, he was flying a desk after that. You know, it's like Lieutenant Brunette stayed in the Navy. So, like, they're definitely selling it as if these are real people. So, there's something to be said about that. Yeah. But generally, I think the intent here was to have some light fare that was entertaining they're not really attempting any geopolitical commentary exactly again if you're going to do a film that is commenting on the geopolitics of a conflict 
This is one of the harder ones you can pick, at least in modern war. You can understand it better by spending some time with it, but you can still realize how complex it is and how complex it must have been for the people who were there. So like, again, like I said before, lots of factions, different religious groups, different different ethnicities, different motivations. So pretty complicated. If you were doing Saddam's invasion of Kuwait, a little more straightforward yeah. in terms of like what the conflict is about. So was it on target? I would say yes, you know, as much as I would love to just completely shit on this film and act like Ebert, who was, you know, clearly trying to not give it any due as as a piece of filmmaking, it is indeed entertaining. I think the missile scene is a good condensation of how I feel about the entire film. It's like the whole time my brain is split between going... This is such horseshit. No one is out racing and outpacing a freaking SAM missile for three minutes. But at the same time, the scene is entertaining the entire time. You're on the edge of your seat. They clearly used a real F-18 and then I think just CGI'd missiles into the scene. None of the CGI sticks out as obvious and the F-18s look real for the most part. So for something that was... You know, had the VFX done in 2000, right, when they were doing posts Mm -hmm. on this film, none of it is so bad that it sticks out where you're like, well, this looks like garbage. So, like, it looks good and it is entertaining, despite the fact that the whole time, if you know anything about reality, you're like, yeah, this isn't accurate at all. Right. But when you watch that scene, the director does a real good job of, like, inducing panic. Like, where is it? He's looking left, looking right. Oh, no. You know, it's just like, uh, yeah, very intense. He did a great job of keeping you on the edge of your seat. Yeah. Yeah. And doing what you're supposed to do, making a movie. I think even just for, I mean, all the O'Grady stuff, I didn't dig too deep. I just went straight to Wikipedia and like read the synopsis there. So even just from the Wikipedia synopsis, you can kind of tell that just the bare bones breakdown is like they were above a cloud layer. They saw this intermittent radar signature. Two missiles got fired. One of them missed them. One exploded in between them and it immediately destroyed his plane and he barely made it out. Mm -hmm. That all sounds like a process that took like three to 10 seconds at most from you realizing you're getting fired at to all of a sudden you got air rushing past your ears and you're floating around in a parachute and you're like, oh shit. Right. That's not as entertaining to show it realistically. So, of course, yeah. But again, I think that's a that's a good synopsis of how the whole film feels, although it gets more ridiculous. And again, there's kind of the tiptoeing through the minds scene, the yeah. covering his face and then uncovering it immediately scene. And you gotta sell tickets and you know, you gotta, you gotta shout out the main actor. For sure. And also... Uh, And I've talked about this. I talked about it a little bit, I think, earlier in the episode. But again, this time period is when directors, even great directors like Ridley Scott, really like to hammer down the slow-mo at certain times or the freeze frames. And it's like a very specific style of editing. And that's the other thing is I think that John Moore, probably having done mostly TV commercials and stuff, is kind of pulling from that realm and also just other movies from the time and other directors that he looked up to. He probably didn't really have much of a style of his own, Mm -hmm. which is going to be something that really shows you what films were edited like in this time period, because he's pulling a lot from his contemporaries, right? So the freeze framing, the slow-mo is just a product of its time. Right. And uh, you you can kind of see that sort of these trends in movies where it's like a new technology happens and then like, you know, like Avatar, that was like sick CGI. And then it's like now 
the bar has been raised and the capabilities have started to be like, you know, mastered on this style or, you know, this effect, you know? And so it's like, until it gets abused, people are going to use it because it's rad for the audience. You know? Right, right. And again, like in Avatar, you're going to see some of James Cameron's signature because he's been making movies since the 70s right. and he definitely has a certain style. So no matter what new technology he's using, you can still tell right. it's a James Cameron film. Again, I'm just guessing here, but I don't feel like John Moore is putting any kind of like his imprint on here. If he even has one at this point, it's his first feature film. So I relate a lot of the style in that to just kind of how movies were made at the time and less more like him. Yeah, you're talking to, you know, you're a director. You got a team. All right, you, what are you good at? Oh, man, we just did this. Okay, I like it. Let's go with it. You right. Know? And just like uh, in the military, when the new lieutenant comes in, he has to rely on the master sergeant to like actually know how to do shit, right. even though he's in charge. Exactly. That's how new directors are. He might have a DP who's got a bunch of experience or a bunch of uh, grips that have a lot of experience. Yep. And it's like, well, you don't want to act incompetent, but you definitely want to ask for help when you know it's your first time doing something. And so you might have some... Yep. 25 year old being like hey if you move that panel over here like the lighting's gonna go such and such right and like so right. who knows I, I don't know the stories i haven't watched behind the scenes of stuff course. on this yeah. but you know probably a lot of that was going on you know I, I read a little bit of stuff on here people calling it jingoistic and i don't know if i would call this jingoistic i mean there are definitely tropes and stereotypes in this it's definitely it's not really rah-rah america i mean sure they you know put a football on a catapult and launch it and it's like yay football right. and it's like okay cool i think there is some cartoonish depiction of you know good guys bad guys in here yes the main, the main bad guy named Tracker, very originally, in the tracksuit. <laughs> Didn't even dawn on me till now that Tracker's wearing yeah. a tracksuit, but it's like, okay, Eastern European dude in tracksuit, right? Even the three-star admiral who seems to have some clout or position over Gene Hackman's character, mm -hmm. who's played as generally... <laughs> He's like just kind of played as generally European. He like strikes me as a French character, but really yes. the actor is from Spain. Small correction here. The actor Joaquim de Almeida is Portuguese, not Spanish. Yeah, Spanish, Italian, French, whatever. You know, he's right. annoying. He has an yeah. accent and he's telling our American admiral what to exactly. do, you know? So it's it's almost like he's the bad guy because he's like, oh, he's not letting us rescue our American. Like, this yeah. is bullshit. So and he's got two measly ribbons. <laughs> What's a funny admiral? You, admiral, are just what the conflict needs. An uncomplicated man. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. So again, this film maybe relies on a few stereotypes a little bit, which is partly in the writing, partly in the directing. But overall, like the effects are good. The cinematography is not bad. The pacing is good. It's never really boring at any point. It's short. You can follow it. You know, the music is sometimes overdone. But I mean, who who knows how people get that? gets their music into a movie like if i'm a if i'm an artist it's like hell yeah i would like to get my music in a feature film for the year yeah for sure i just mean i just mean more in the way things are layered where for example yeah. when they first bail out and they're coming down on their super colorful america parachutes and they're coming down by this famous statue of the virgin mary or, or the angel sorry that there's a state the angel statue 
and they're coming around the right side of its face. Mm -hmm. And then as the parachutes turn, it comes over to the left side of her face and it's all pockmarked with, you know, war scarring from each shot. And the music is like, duh, like right when you see her yeah. face. And it's like, okay, we're, la we're laying it on a little thick here. That That's kind of what I meant by the music being a little overdone sometimes is just how they're like yeah. hamming it up. But again, kind of typical for a movie like this. And to have like the stereotypes, like, I don't see nothing wrong with that. It's like paint, obviously, who's good and who's bad. Not, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was genocide involved and there were people committing genocide. So if you're going to paint the bad guys as the ones who committed genocide, like, fine. You know, once you get into this war, the reality of it is that, you know, the genocide is being excused by one side based on atrocities that the other side committed like a long time, like these historical right. rivalries. So, you know, there, there's that to be said once you're really getting into geopolitics. But yeah, in terms of this movie, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, uh, if it, if the Nazis are there, the Nazis are going to be the bad guys. If you uh, killed people and threw them in a mass grave, you're going to be the bad guys. Like, that's how it goes. Exactly. Yeah. It's tough to recover. <laughs> so did I like it? You know? Kind of like Tyler said, it's nothing to write home about, and it makes me wish a better film had been made about this incident in particular, like Scott O'Grady's downing and everything. War crimes and genocide are pretty serious topics, and this war, the Bosnian War of the early 90s, and this incident deserves a really serious approach, which I don't think it has really received yet. So the good news is there's space to do this. It's been you know, 30-ish years, and whether you take this event or whether you do a film about the Bosnian War in general, there's plenty of room to explore here, and you can definitely go on the spectrum of how complex you want to make it and, again, get into geopolitics. So, I think it was a good pick overall. It was a good movie for Tyler to jump in a little bit on his training experiences and seer training and stuff like that, and it was fun to talk about. In the end, I think this one worked out. Thanks, Tyler, for coming on. At this point, your interview was released since, again, we're in 2023 now, and I am still every day getting constantly good reviews and good commentary, and people really enjoyed hearing about your training. So thanks again for coming on for that, and thanks for coming on for this one. It was really fun hanging out again and talking about it with you. Thanks for having me. I did really enjoy uh, both sessions. It was a good time. I think we'll, we'll have to invite you back on for something else later. I'd love to. Audience. You guys have a great day. See you guys on the next one.